Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes, Client Portfolio Manager at Von Nelson. My guest today is Chad Farkson. Chad joined the firm in 2013. His background has a PhD in mathematics, and today he's a Senior Portfolio Manager at Von Nelson. Welcome to the show, Chad. Uh, thank you very much. So let's step right into the investing, specifically around Von Nelson's philosophy. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means in your own words? You know, at Von Nelson, we are looking to invest to help our clients meet some need they have. We're looking to help pension funds meet a need they have to satisfy their obligation to the pensioners. We're looking to help an endowment, perhaps uh, build a building on a campus that they'd like to build sometime in the future. We're looking to help parents put their children through college. We're looking to meet real money needs of real investors. Uh, so as you look out at this uh, on a long-term horizon, uh, as a long investor, you know, tell me about a little bit about the discipline uh, and how you take that approach. So we've got a, a relatively simple approach to investing. We look to buy stocks in a concentrated portfolio or a relatively concentrated portfolio where each stock is going to appreciate 50% or more across three years' time. Now, the way we look to do that is, uh, is actually we only find ourselves buying three different categories of stocks. There are probably many different ways you could try to find a 50% uh, appreciation in value in a stock in three years' time. We think there are three that we can reliably identify. Number one, we can find undervalued growth companies. These are companies where they're growing organically. Uh, they may also be growing inorganically through acquisitions. And for whatever reason, the market today doesn't properly value that growth. We can pick those companies up at a discount to their intrinsic value and then hold them until the market actually properly values them. The second is through buying an undervalued asset company. Uh, this is a company that owns a set of underlying uh, assets, say factories or ships or other means of production that for whatever reason are currently selling at 50 cents on the dollar. And we can buy those companies when we see the catalyst that will get those values re-rated back closer to a dollar on the dollar. Third way we can find companies undervalued dividend companies, companies which have a double-digit dividend plus some appreciation in the underlying book value, that 10-plus percent dividend plus, say, 4 or 5% appreciation of the book value gets us 15% per year, which if you do the math three years in a row, that gets you 50% return. That's great. Can you talk to us a little bit more about you know, where, why you see Von Elson as, as being a bit different than most uh, equity managers that are out there uh, in the marketplace? And, and what are we trying to achieve that you'd say is uh, explicitly um, uh, atypical from uh, long-only managers? Sure. So first of all, we're trying to achieve, uh, we think, um, value by trading away time. So we trade time for value. In other words, we look to buy companies for the long term, three plus years. What you find today, what we find today as we study the market, is there are people creating value on the very, very short term. There are flash boys and arbitrageurs that have super fast computers that can create value at the millisecond level. They do it. We definitely do not do that. You cannot create value, we don't believe, anywhere in the several seconds time frame to the one year or less time frame. But once you get out to multiple years, two years, three years, and beyond, again, today the academics will tell you and our practical experience will tell you that if we're investing for three plus years, we're very different. There are very few firms that are investing like we are, and we can actually create value there. So we think we're very differentiated in investing for three or more years at a time in each of the companies we invest in. And, uh, and doing that in a way, uh, as we described earlier, in a discipline that allows us to 
identify why we want to hold those companies for three or more years, and then be able to hold them through the ups and downs. If you can hold through those ups and downs, that's a very differentiated approach. And so, so does that time horizon, I would imagine, as you're examining businesses, as you're looking into, into companies, uh, with much less of, a, of a, or a much more of an ownership mentality than opposed to a, a trade mentality, uh, that allows the investable universe to open up a bit more for you. Would you say that? Would you agree with that? Yes and no. So uh, certainly it allows us to, to look across a broad, you know, investable universe of, of public companies. That said, what, uh, what's interesting about this is that when you really want to hold something for three or more years, there are a lot of things today that you think, gosh, I think I can identify 10% value here in a trade. I think this company probably will go up 10% in, you know, the next month or two off of this specific catalyst. We never buy on that basis. So what we find is actually interesting is it allows us to, in many ways, focus and slim down uh, while we have the entire investable universe there of all public companies, it allows us to focus and slim down the ones that we actually want to buy. So, so you said something else interesting I thought was uh, trading time for value, right? And as you wrap this three-year, 36-month window around a potential investment, um, clearly over any period of time of that length, there's going to be some type of macro influence uh, that is driving the market in, in one direction or another or in this or certain magnitude. Uh, can we talk a little bit about how, as a bottom-up fundamental investor, the macro influences your perspective? Absolutely. So there are, uh, there are a number of examples you can come up with, uh, but let me just give you a couple of simple ones to make sure you understand the idea of, of why you have to be thinking of the macro, even if you're a fundamental investor. So for example, if you wanted to own a, a good building products company and you thought, I've found the best building products company in the world, and they have all of the ability to gain share and to grow their margin uh, and, and to grow their cash flows here. And you were looking at that company back in 2006. If you were ignoring the cracks in the housing market, the macro signs that began to be available to you back then that began to be pointed out by the astute observers, if you ignored those signs, you could have invested in that building products company and ridden it all the way down as housing busted. The macro environment of housing overall just completely swamped any micro fundamental bottom-up value that that building products company had. That company still existed. It probably, if it had a good balance sheet, rode its way through that, um, uh, that housing bust of 2007 and 8, and yet the value that you were hoping to achieve with that company would not have been there maybe until even now. So... Knowing the company really well, knowing management, knowing exactly what they're going to do, all fantastic, all absolutely required as a bottom-up fundamental investor, but it is also required to understand what else is going on in the macro world because it can swamp all the micro-company-specific value you may find. You described three categories of names that you look to identify, right, as an undervalued growth, undervalued assets, undervalued dividends. Uh, for you, does macro influence the way that you look at one of these three buckets? Uh, do you have a lean or a preference into any of the three? Is one of the three easier to find than any of the others? Uh, that's a great question. So, so certainly there are times when the macro environment influences which of those are easier or harder to find. Again, if you go back, let's say, let's rewind the clock. Let's go back to 2005, 2006. Uh, Henry Kravis defined that time as the golden age of private equity. Well, as the golden age of private equity, that actually meant uh, something to what was available in the investing universe. It was almost impossible at that time to find undervalued assets in public companies. 
If there was an undervalued asset in a public company, a private equity firm was already levering it up and or planning to lever it up and, and purchase it and take it private. So at that time, the macro environment, that is the macro credit environment, made it incredibly difficult to find a one type, an undervalued asset. On the other hand, shockingly, it made it actually kind of easy to find uh, a number of undervalued growers at the time. They were not being bid up in the same way by the private equity buyers, and hence they were much more available to us as, um, as long-only, long-term uh, value equity players. So, so certainly that, that macro environment can influence which of those uh, uh, you know, businesses are more or less available to you at a time. Going uh, almost the complete opposite, if you go through the fiscal crisis and come into the, say, 2010-2011 time frame, uh, suddenly, banks were abundantly available, and banks were selling uh, at or below tangible book value, which they hadn't been anywhere close to uh, just three years prior. And so you could now go buy a bank at uh, even 80 cents on the, on the dollar of tangible book value and feel very good about your possibility of getting that re-rated up to a uh, dollar and more of tangible book value and growing that book value as the economy was growing again. So in 2010, 2011, uh, you could actually begin to really invest in bank stocks in a way that um, uh, was actually much, much easier uh, than it would have ever been back in the 2006, 2007 timeframe. Uh, no, that's a great answer. And so, you know, as you look out at the portfolio that you run now today, it's, it's a very high active share. It's a concentrated portfolio. Um, how about we walk through a hypothetical example of what it is that you're actually looking for business? And, you know, as a, as a precursor to this, uh, so Chad spent uh, roughly 10 years at, in private equity prior to coming to Von Nelson. And, you know, given that, with that background, are there some inherent biases that you bring across? Um, what are some of the similarities that you find in, in buying long equities and in, in, in the PE world? Um, could you share that with our, our listeners? Certainly. You know, something that we look for today, something I look for in the businesses that I buy today, is very similar to something that I would look for uh, in, uh, in the private equity world in, in my experience then. And that is that uh, both then and now, I'm looking for a high return business that has the ability to grow its earnings somewhat um, outside of or, or despite whatever is happening in the, uh, in the broader environment, within reason, as we said, the macro environment can swamp things, but within reason, you can find businesses that have the ability to uh, gain share, have the ability to grow organically, have the ability to cut costs, and so therefore can grow their earnings almost despite whatever else is happening within their industry. So if you can find one of those businesses and find one that requires relatively low capital investment. If you combine those two, uh, those two traits, the ability to grow earnings with relatively low incremental capital investment, that usually is a high return business. It's a business that um, is a high return business because it has certain uh, fundamental characteristics that make it um, relatively hard for others to enter into. So it's got high barriers to entry, typically. If you can find one of those businesses and you can find it for whatever reason, selling at a discount, selling at a, a value much below its intrinsic value. And this happens. It happens all the time for very idiosyncratic reasons. If you can find one of those businesses, that's what you want to own. Uh, that's the same uh, look that we had uh, when I was in private equity for a decade. It's the same look we have here at Von Nelson, trying to find a high-return business that happens to be selling uh, for some idiosyncratic reason at a, uh, at, a below, um, at a below intrinsic value. And so on the flip side of that, yeah, as you're evaluating business, are there, is there anything that, that triggers red flag? Is there anything that would uh, 
you, you would look at and say, look, this, this is something that we need to avoid, whether it's within the business cycle, within the economic cycle, or is it a, a automatic uh, no-go if you, if you see this uh, type of characteristic in a specific name? So there are a few things that we tend to avoid almost um, you know, all the time. Uh, one of those would be to buy something which has a, uh, almost a lottery ticket style payoff. There are a number of uh, businesses in the world that you can buy, uh, public companies that you can buy that, that actually look a lot like lottery tickets. So for example, almost the entire biotech space, you can invest in a company that has, say, a billion-dollar market cap. And if it happens to work, if the molecule they are investing in and investigating happens to work, then you can, uh, you can score 10 times, 20 times your money. On the other hand, if it doesn't happen to work, as is the case 15, uh, 20 times more often than working, you get nothing back. You go, you, you lose pretty much all of your, your investment. And this, that's, that's and, a lottery ticket. And, and this is something in, which is virtually impossible to tell through any conversation with management teams, impossible to tell reading through a 10K, uh, nearly impossible to tell uh, through any type of financial model. Um, this is just a business that you cannot possibly predict, never mind predict over a multiple-year time frame. That's exactly right. Now, there will be scientists out there who tell you that they have a proprietary edge and they understand exactly what this molecule will do. And frankly, if they did, uh, they would probably have gone ahead and, and, and found this molecule themselves or been able to, uh, to uh, uh, somehow identify it ahead of time. It, it, it turns out even the very best scientists have a very hard time with these sort of science-based biotechs, really understanding what's going to happen. That's exactly right. No matter how much research you do, you just can't know. Or I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that you have a PhD in mathematics. I think most folks uh, looking at investment strategies typically would associate a PhD in mathematics with quantitative investing as opposed to research-based fundamental investing. Um, with this as your, as your background, does it skew or does it bring any additional tools uh, as you're evaluating business, whether it's through the screening process or it's, it's how you map out a business? Um, talk a little bit about how your background infiltrates the process uh, of looking through businesses today. You know, I think my uh, doctorate in math influences me uh, mostly by uh, two things. One, uh, in order to, to follow that path, that requires a certain level of discipline. And as we talked about earlier, investing at Von Nelson requires a, an extreme amount of discipline. And I think just learning that, having that discipline over time, uh, both in my academic uh, career and, and now here at Von Nelson, that's all kind of part and parcel of the same thing. I think the second is that um, in math in particular, math is a very, uh, it's a very deductive uh, process. And so in, in math, you start from a few fundamental principles, and from there you build up more and more and more um, uh, facts and, uh, and what we call theorems in math. And as you put those facts and theorems in place, you build a larger and larger understanding of, of what's possible in the mathematical world. In the very same way, within the investing world, I come at it with a very few set of principles that I want to understand. Number one, cash. Cash is king. Cash matters. Number two, business structure and industry structure matter. And number three, the way that a management team and a company is organized uh, allows it to live within an industry structure and, uh, and generate or not generate cash. 
And so if you take those three sort of fundamental principles, you can in many ways then build up a number of facts, a number of theorems, a number of investing uh, ideas, which allow you to then filter and screen a number of companies through your investment process and decide which companies make sense to investigate further and, frankly, which companies uh, don't make a lot of sense. That's really helpful. One of the words that you repeatedly used was, was discipline. And I think perhaps maybe more importantly or equal to uh, entering a name into the portfolio is the discipline to recognize or have an understanding that either your thesis has changed or something in your thesis has broken. Um, let's talk about if you're on the flip side of the trade, uh, what triggers a pivot? How do you incorporate and process new information? And ultimately, what would drive you to exit a position in the portfolio? That's uh, a, it's a great question. Obviously, at least as critical as entering a, uh, a good portfolio company, if, if perhaps not more important. There are a few things that we recognize at Von Nelson as absolutely critical to understand and, and frankly, to tell you to get out of an investment. One of them is if you get good competition. So you're running uh, with a, a great management team. You think you've got a portfolio company that you think really understands what's happening in an industry. And Amazon steps in and decides to compete in that industry. At that moment, it is wisest probably to step out. Not to say that Amazon's going to kill every business, but that's good competition. That's good for your consumer. That's, that's not good for your small business. That's exactly right. Uh, another uh, key signal is getting uh, bad management. There can be very, very good companies out there, companies which have had uh, years' worth of stellar outsized returns, the CEO may turn over, maybe uh, two or three of the executive suite all turn over at the same time, and new management steps in. If the new management that steps in, if after a quarter or two, as you listen to them, you understand them, you talk with them, you say, this management team does not quite understand what they have, you know you need to step out. So good competition or bad management, either one, are two very, very clear signs that even the very best companies that you think you're invested in, you should step away from. Okay, so... Changing things up a little bit here, let's talk about just the world of investing today. There's a lot going on on a global macro scale. Uh, what excites you? There is so much happening today. There is so much change in the world that it's just fantastically, fantastically fun to come in every day and understand what's changing, what changed yesterday, what changed last night, and, and see the world as it continues to evolve. As an example, renewable energy. People have been talking about windmills and been talking about solar for a long time. These things have been talked about as pet projects, as little things that someday might make a difference in the world. They're making a difference in the world right now today. Renewable energy, it's, it's real, it's here, it's economic, it's making a major difference in the world. I've, I've seen in, in some region of the United States, uh, renewable energy is now on, uh, cost is now on par with bioenergy. So, you know, pretty, you know, pretty fascinating. It's exactly right. So the fact that now solar can compete with fossil fuels is amazing. It's unbelievable. That's just one among many changes in the world. Artificial intelligence is another. Artificial intelligence is allowing certain things to happen that you could never have done before. IBM's Watson now can actually diagnose and treat cancer as well as experts. Not that we have Watson as the primary line, but Watson now acts as a secondary helper to oncologists all over America and probably soon all over the world helping those oncologists figure out, one, what's happening with a patient, and two, how do I treat a patient? Oncologists no longer have the ability to actually keep up with all the new research coming out every single day. Watson can. That level of AI is 
fundamentally changing what's happening in the world. A third, and we've heard about this, I think, for a long time uh, coming, it's now, now happening, autonomous driving. People have talked about cars and trucks that can drive themselves forever. Autonomous driving is real. Autonomous driving is happening today and is going to continue uh, to be more and more important. And frankly, it's influencing what you're able to invest in and sometimes not invest in uh, today. So what we find is we find there, there are many, many different things going on with technology that are changing the world. We also find there are things going on in, uh, in the environment today that are changing the world. People say the climate is changing more rapidly. Lots of debate about why that's happening, about whether that's being caused uh, strictly by carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere or by other things. But it's pretty undisputed that the climate is indeed changing, and it's changing at a rate that is more rapid than it's ever changed before. That's also causing us to have uh, an interesting set of, of interactions, that climate change with this technology change. And I'll throw a third on top of that, the marketplace itself, the world of commerce. We had a world in, let's say, the 1950s and 60s and 70s, which was broadly nationalistic. If you were in the U.S., you could think about U.S. companies. You didn't think about what was happening in China. It wasn't really that important to think about Japan. As the 1980s came, we found ourselves having a little bit of influence in a few industries, like auto, uh, automotive uh, from Japan and from Europe. Well, now, now you have to think about what's happening worldwide. The supply of labor, the supply of intellect, the supply of capital, the supply of any of these things anywhere else in the world can actually change what is investable and not investable here in the United States. And so these three different accelerations, these three things happening, the acceleration in, in technology, some of the ones you're describing, artificial intelligence, autonomous driving, solar, the changes in the uh, environment itself, and the changes in uh, the marketplace, the worldwide sourcing of capital, of labor, and of intellect, these three interact to make for a fundamentally new and exciting and different world than we've ever had before. And you've just created a really clean lead into our next topic, discussing a little bit about the macro here. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I think today that there is a very much a perception that the economic environment is, is middling. And given what you've just described, you know, in your opinion, do you believe that the economy is doing better than it's perceived? Uh, could you please touch on that? You know, I do. I think the economy is actually far better uh, than many people perceive it. We have a world in the United States in which we've now been adding jobs for 77 months in a row. We've actually got unemployment down to, um, frankly, the, the, the lowest levels it's had in, in a long time. It's down at levels um, almost uh, it's within a tick or two of the lowest levels we've seen uh, since, uh, you know, in the post-war world, the post-World War II world. You cannot today get enough skilled labor in a number of places. For example, if you want to get an electrician to come and work on building a house in many cities in America today, that is actually difficult to do. If you want to hire a new truck driver, someone who's going to make a very good wage, who's going to make $60,000, $80,000 a year, you actually can't find people who are able to, to drive those trucks because those same qualified people, people who are qualified to do that, are qualified to do a number of other things. It's uh, fascinating to me that if you want to go and start a new rig drilling for oil in the Permian today, and you want to hire people to get on that rig, it is actually difficult to find workers to get on that rig. That's not a world in which we have a, a languid, slow economy. That's a world in which 
all qualified workers are currently deeply engaged in jobs, and new workers are getting more uh, qualified every day to get engaged in these jobs. So, so if you think about that as, as a backdrop and looking at the market as a whole, and one of the things that we, we discussed actually prior to coming on here was the excess liquidity that you've seen inside the market um, and furthermore on corporate balance sheets. Uh, do you feel as though that is driving the market and where do you think that will end up shaking out in, in, in the next few years to come? You know, frankly, this is probably one of the more scary aspects of what we currently have as a, as a, a pretty solid bull market today. This uh, concept of excess liquidity, that is the amount of uh, total money in the economy, the growth of that money is exceeding the growth in the, uh, in the economy itself. While I think the economy is doing well, it's very clear that the growth of money in the economy is growing more rapidly than the economy itself. That creates a set of excess liquidity. That excess liquidity is going to be drained from the system. It is in the process right now of being drained by the Fed. But let's not go there yet. Let's look at what's happened so far. So far, that excess liquidity has led to a very simple set of things happening. The data show us that if you take all buyers of stock over the last seven or eight years and you group them as corporates buying back their own stock, that's group one, and everybody else, households, hedge funds, pensions, everybody else in the second bucket buying stock, that's group two. The first group, group one, corporates buying their own stock have been the only net buyers of stock. The entire second bucket, pensions, hedge funds, institutional buyers, everybody else has been net neutral or, frankly, a slight net seller of stocks over the last seven or eight years. And we're, we're talking about the, the aggregated number. We are talking about uh, stock repurchases from corporations and everybody else in total combined. That's right. And so that, that, that dichotomy that basically corporates have the excess liquidity coming onto their balance sheet. It's coming onto their balance sheet because what are they doing? They're out there selling, uh, issuing debt, taking the dollars from that debt and buying back their stock. That total net activity of corporates issuing debt and, and taking that money and buying back stock, that's all happening because there's excess liquidity in the marketplace. That is driving up stock prices. So, so my, my last question for you here is, we are about to witness, or the expectation is we are about to witness, with the new administration, a significant movement from monetary to fiscal policy. Um, how does that affect what we've just discussed, and how do you, how do you anticipate that will affect uh, the U.S. economy going forward as well? Uh, so that's a great question. So what I've just described, this concept that there's excess liquidity in the world, that is by design. That is exactly what the U.S. Fed and, frankly, the other central banks around the world wanted to have. By design, they put excess liquidity into the system in order to support the asset market, in order to support stock prices, because there was the understanding, the belief that if they did that back during the financial crisis and coming out of the financial crisis, that was the number one way to heal the market. Now, we've had that excess liquidity for a long time. People talk about there being a punch bowl that's been spiked, and people talk about the Fed coming in and removing the punch bowl, the spiked, very spiked punch bowl out of the party, and now it's time for a hangover. And the real question here is, is exactly this. This changeover, this handover from monetary policy to fiscal policy, can we do that smoothly? Can we take the baton and hand it from the runner, which is monetary policy, which has been this spiked punch bowl, 
Can we hand that baton to fiscal policy? Can the federal government, for example, spend enough dollars in infrastructure? Can the federal government uh, choose to change the tax rate in such a way? Uh, can the federal government uh, set a number of incentives out in such a way? Can they do any of these things or a number of other things in such a way to continue to push the economy forward, but without all this excess monetary policy uh, out there helping along? That's a big, big open question. And frankly, that I think will be the question that drives the stock market from here through, let's say, 2020. So the ups and downs that we see from, uh, from today uh, frankly, throughout the balance of, say, the, the, the Donald Trump term as president, uh, will be very much driven by the answer to this question of, of what's going to happen with this handover between monetary to fiscal policy. Chad, very insightful conversation today. Before I let you go, one last piece. Uh, for any of our listeners out there, I always like to find out if there's any books, podcasts, websites, anything that you've seen or read or looked at or listened to of late um, that you think other folks on the other side of this uh, podcast might be interested in, in taking a look at. So, so certainly one of the books that's been influencing my thinking uh, is the, uh, the newest book by uh, Thomas Friedman. It's called Thank You for Being Late. I described uh, a little bit of his thesis earlier and some of the things I was saying. It uh, very well comports with the way we see the world, and I would encourage you to go out and, and take a look at Thank You for Being Late. I think you'll find it quite insightful. Thank you very much, and thank you for our guest today, Chad Ferguson. Thank you very much. Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Chad Ferguson from March 21, 2017. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or an offer of services. This communication is for information only and is intended for investment professional use only. This material may not be distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Although Natixis Global Asset Management believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. Provided by NGAM Distribution, LP, 399 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02116. Pod 950417. Ad tracks 176508711. Expires 430-2018.